You are listening to the Cairn 10 podcast, where we bring alumni back inside Cairn University. Today, you'll hear our third conversation with Greg Schaller. Greg has been a faculty member in the School of Liberal Arts teaching politics since 2017, but his main role is president of the John Jay Institute, which happens to sit also on Cairn's campus. For more on the John Jay Institute, you can go back to our previous podcasts and, of course, visit them on the web. Remember, too, that students at Cairn can now earn a BA in politics and they can also minor in politics. And we have a pre-law minor as well. Well, I asked Greg to join me again to answer some pretty basic questions about voting. These are questions you may have as a new voter, but they also may be things that have bothered you for some time as a voter. And finding the time to wade through all the minutiae of voting-related preparation and questions is something that may just go outside of your mind until election time rolls around again. So our goal here is to do a lot of that preliminary homework for you and then let you take your own voter preparation to the next level so that you can step confidently into the booth or curtain or wherever it is you're voting, knowing that you are ready. By the end of the podcast, you'll figure out how to get answers to questions like where to vote, who can vote, the benefits and drawbacks of political party association, what to do in the booth if you don't recognize a particular candidate, and what other patriotic and helpful things you can do on election day besides being an informed voter who actually votes. Our guests will highlight some simple resources that can help answer all your questions, especially if you're in Pennsylvania or New Jersey, and he tells you where to find those answers if you're in another state. And we wrap up also with Greg's take himself on the 2020 election. So with that, let's get started with our guest, Greg Schaller. Greg Schaller, thanks for joining us again on the podcast. Absolutely. Glad to be here. Well, we're going to jump right in here with uh, quite a few questions, pretty basic questions about voter preparation. Number one, who can vote and who cannot vote? Yeah. So just for the listener, um, most of my answers, you know, I've looked up both Pennsylvania and New Jersey laws just because probably quite a few of our listeners um, are living in those two states. But one thing I would say, most election laws governed by the Secretary of State's office in every, all 50 states. So if my answers don't answer a specific question for somebody living outside of Pennsylvania or New Jersey, go to your Secretary of State's webpage and you'll be able to get all the information um, for that. So so both for Pennsylvania and New Jersey and most other states, 18 years old, living in the district in which you want to register to vote are the key things. Um, having to be there for at least 30 days, living in a district for 30 days. Um, in New Jersey, you can actually register to vote as a 17-year-old but you can't vote until you're 18. So you can register early, but aren't allowed to vote until you turn 18. There are, of course, a couple of limitations. You can't be a convicted felon serving in prison at the time to register or to vote. But other than that, it's obviously, you know, we have universal suffrage in the United States. So a citizen living in a district for at least 30 days above the age of 18, you're allowed to, to vote. I just thought of this one now, Greg, though, if I could interrupt. College students, do you know anything about that? What, what's their situation? Sure. They can re- either register at their permanent home address or at their campus address. Either are possible. So, um, yeah, whatever, you know, maybe you're most interested in, um, you know, if you really care about the community where you're living on campus, uh, it makes a lot of sense to try and register to vote. And, you know, in a lot of college campuses, depending on the size of the campus and the community in which they're in, a lot of students registering to vote could actually have an impact on a local election outcome, certainly. Um, 
there's other stories, you know, larger state universities where there are 30, 40,000 students living on campus. There's often a very strong push to get all of them to register there because they certainly can sway local elections uh, if that's the case. Um, just a little bit more about how to register. Um, both Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and most states have lots of opportunities for doing this either online or in a paper form of filling out a form. But both states allow you and most other states allow you to go to a web page linked from uh, the Secretary of State's office, again, where you can fill out an application um, and submit it you know, electronically. Others, if you get a paper form, you actually have to mail it in. Uh, there's lots of places you can get those. There's county election offices that you can get this, but most of our state senators and state representatives will have the forms just in the lobbies of their offices, um, and other governmental offices will have that. And of course, also, um, we passed Motor Voter Bill 30-some years ago, so when you uh, get a driver's license, assuming you're above the age of 18 when you do this, you're also allowed to register to vote at that time. Now, how about locations? Um, you know, you got yourself registered to vote and you are driving around a community on election day, you see all kinds of signs, vote here, vote there. Uh, can a person go any place or do they have to go to a specific place? Yeah, you have to go to a specific place. Um, and again, just go to your Secretary of State's office uh, webpage and you type in your address and I will put links, I think, to the, the show notes for all of these uh, um, when this is posted. So. Um, yeah, Pennsylvania and New Jersey both have a very simple form. You just type in your mailing address and it will tell you exactly where your polling place is. So it's very simple that way. How about party affiliation? Do you have to be affiliated with a particular party in order to vote? No. Um, in general elections, you do not. Now, in primary elections, you do, but we will talk about that in a second. So. You can be an independent or unaffiliated voter, so you don't have to register as a Democrat or Republican, but there also are other political parties um, you can register for. You can be a Green, a Libertarian, a Constitution Party, and there's, there's many others um, that you can register as. The one thing that is a bit tricky is if you want to vote in primaries. Now, there's some variance across the country as to different primary laws. We have states that are called a closed primary, which means that you can only vote in what you are registered as. So if you're a registered Republican, you can vote in the Republican primary. If you're a registered Democrat, you can vote in the Democrat primary. If you are an unaffiliated voter, you cannot vote in those um, parties, and you can't cross over from a Democrat voting in a Republican primary or a Republican voting in a Democrat primary. The exception being if you change your voter registration, which you can do. In most states, the laws is 30 days prior to an election, you have to be a registered voter. So if you decided you wanted to vote in the Democrat primary, but you were a registered Republican, as long as you changed your voter registration 30 days prior, you could then vote in the Democrat uh, primary. Now, New Jersey, so Pennsylvania is a closed primary state. New Jersey is what's called a sort of a semi-closed primary, meaning that if you are an independent voter or registered in another party, you don't have to make that decision 30 days out. You can actually just do it on election day. So on the primary day, you can uh, make that declaration that you're going to vote in the other party's primary. Now, you can't vote in both parties' primaries, but you can make that. Now, there are several states in the United States that have moved towards a purely open primary, which does allow you any time to just decide which party's primary you want to vote in, and you can do that. Um, and there's been a bit of movement towards that. More and more states have moved towards open primaries. 
the political parties don't really like it all that much um, because there is a possibility, a potential. It's not too great, but there's a potential for people to kind of wreak havoc in the other party's primary by voting for a certain maybe less desirable candidate. Um, but yeah, so those are the primary rules. So, you know, there's some benefit, obviously, to registering for a political political party because there is that ability to vote in those primaries. So you you actually kind of alluded to this already. What what are the benefits that you see for a voter to be registered to a particular party and then and then are there drawbacks to that? I mean, is there any point where you would advise somebody who is politically motivated and and minded and and active uh, not to register with a particular party? Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of benefit to it, um, to being registered to a particular party. Now, I mean, in America, we have pretty loose parties, and interesting if you do a comparison to a lot of other countries, they have stricter party rules. But in the United States, it's as simple as a declaration, I want to be a Democrat, I want to be a Republican, I check a box, and I am. If you were to compare that to a strong party nation, there's actually a lot of rules, and you can actually be kicked out of a party if you don't vote in party lines. We obviously don't have that both for just the average voter, but even for elected officials. I mean, you can go to Washington, D.C., and if you look at a Republican from Maine and a Republican from Alabama, these are two very different people who will often vote differently. Um, so there's a fair amount of diversity in that. The reason why I think there's value to it, you know, if you are aligned one way or another more towards a party, is that the primaries are where you can actually have a significant influence in determining who your party's candidates are going to be. And there's often, you know, competitive primaries, and there's a lot of differences between Democrats, like Democrats, and Republicans. So it's a real opportunity to have a significant voice in, you know, who your party's candidate is going to be. Also, in some communities where there is almost a single party rule, and Philadelphia would be an example of that, where the overwhelming majority of people are Democrats, when you get to the general election, the decision's already been made. It's very, very difficult for a Republican to win a citywide race in Philadelphia. So if you want to have an influence on who the party's candidates are, who the candidates are going to be, who the ultimate victor is going to be, you know, it's very important then to be a registered Democrat because you will have a greater influence over that. And, you know, it's similar in different, you know, different communities. Some have majority Republican rule and they have for an extended period of time. There's other communities that have very much an entrenched Democratic power base. So I would say, you know, certainly in instances like that, it would be important. But in all instances, I think, you know, you you have an opportunity to have an influence over who the party's candidates are going to be. And that's important. Um, in a lot of primary elections, a very small percentage of voters actually come out and vote. So your, your voice really does matter an awful lot in primary elections. I want to talk a little bit about the issue of researching candidates with, with you, Greg, because for a election coming up like this November, of course, the presidential elections uh, get so much more attention. And because of the media, there's so much more coverage of these individuals. Some might even say, to perhaps too much coverage of those individuals. Um, but so there's kind of the, the national candidates, the candidates at the state level, who, who we may at least see more. They have websites. They have more money behind them. But you and I talked in a previous podcast about the significance of local politics, and you made the argument there, which 
I, I certainly would see as being very valid that local politics probably has in some ways far greater effect on the average individual. You know, I think you mentioned something about, you know, rules about when trash is picked up and how. And, you know, I have this kind of annoying light out front of my house, a street light that is always on. I'd actually kind of prefer it not to be. And I thought that's a great place to exercise local political, uh, you know, connections and, and to really have an impact on, on, you know, light leaning into my home. Um, so, but those local candidates, it's a lot harder to find. I mean, the, the number of people who are running and there's just not a lot of information on them. So can you talk about those two? How do people go about preparing to figure out the, 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 the way they want to vote for more prominent candidates as well as for the, the much more difficult issue of local candidates? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it is tough. I mean, and so the expectation, on, the onus is on the voter, unfortunately, for a lot of this, where you're going to have to do some research um, in order to figure out where particular you know, candidates stand on issues, um, where their opponents stand on issues, and um, sort of researching that, researching ballot initiatives and things like that. So the onus, unfortunately, is increasingly, I think, on the voter. Uh, I don't even think a lot of our media does a very good job of, you know, focusing attention on different candidates, certainly for local elections. So, yeah, it, it is work to do this, but it, obviously I think it's an important thing for citizenship that you, you spend some time doing that. The obvious answer is, you know, fortunately, while there is, you know, a need to do research, you know, almost every candidate will, in fact, have a web page. And... Obviously, there's going to be some bias there, but they will typically put their stance on several important issues um, that are relevant, germane to the, their constituents. So going to a web page of a candidate, you're going to find out a lot about them. They always will have their biography, their academic background, other things, their professional life, family life, and the like. So you're going to find out things about them, but they almost always will have their stance on five, six, seven, you know, key issues, especially those that really probably matter to local constituents. Political parties have web pages, and they often will link to these candidates, but they'll also, you know, have references to them. Again, same thing, stances on issues and the like. Another thing you can do now, again, there's going to be a bias with these, are utilizing interest groups um, that, you know, are involved in issues, and these are national and local. So, if you care about a lot about something like abortion or immigration, guns, the environment, energy, whatever, there are national but also local interest groups that review candidates. They ask them questions. A lot of times they'll create a voter's guide for this. So again, back to maybe something like guns or something like that, if you care a lot about gun control or you care a lot about guns rights, you know, um, ability to own, possess guns, there are interest groups that are reviewing constantly candidates. So again, you have to keep in mind there's going to be some bias there, but you know they typically will look, um, and a lot of times they'll actually survey candidates, tell me where you stand on this particular issue, and candidates will respond to that often. There's also uh, some web pages, and again, we'll, we'll put some links to these. There's one called BallotReady.org. There's one VoteForEleven.org. The League of Women Voters has a web page. Um, Ballotopedia.org is also another one. Now, some may be critical of these. There may be some bias with a few of these, but something that they all do, they do independent research, and they provide that for the voter. And so you can go and look at that, and all four of those will actually do these questionnaires to candidates where they'll ask both candidates 
to respond to five, six, or seven questions. And it's typically more than just a one-sentence soundbite. You know, they'll actually give them an opportunity to type a couple of paragraphs kind of explaining their stance on issues. So those are some ways that you can do some research. But again, some of them do provide it for you, so there's a one place to go um, to learn about candidates in elections. But it still is going to require an individual voter to do a little bit of legwork uh, to learn about candidates and to learn about issues. How about the more prominent candidates, you know, in um, national and presidential uh, senatorial elections and that kind of thing? Um, you mentioned Real, Real Clear Politics last time as a site that you recommend people visit. Are there other places you think people should go to, to see where um, candidates stack up on issues? Yeah, well, all four of those web pages I just mentioned, um, they actually do local and national elections. And so oh, you'll be able to get a, a chance. Yeah, they, yeah they, they do a decent job, I think, of even getting down into like local state representative, state senator elections, um, county commissioners and things like that, all the way up to the very top of the president and U.S. senators, congressmen and the like. So, um, yeah, those are pretty good our, um, sources uh, of information. How about straight party voting? Can you talk about what that is and, and what are the benefits and pitfalls of this? Yeah, well, Pennsylvania and New Jersey uh, actually do not any longer. Uh, Pennsylvania actually passed a voter uh, bill last year, 2019, where they no longer allow straight party voting. In fact, there's only six states now in the United States that allow straight ticket voting. Um, it's an interesting thing. I mean, it was a tool, obviously, that parties kind of liked because their thinking was that a registered Democrat or a registered Republican going into the voting booth, if they have the opportunity to pull one lever or push one button, that whole slate of candidates is going to get those votes. And so they have an interest in doing that. But some people want voters to actually have to, you know, make a decision. Um, and so that's why most states have moved away from that single lever, single button. Now, yeah, I mean, the, the thinking behind it is also, um, this gets into that point about strong parties or weak parties. Does voting straight Republican or voting straight Democrat mean something? Um, but because there's so much variance amongst the candidates that they don't all sort of follow identical positions on six, seven, eight, ten issues, there can be some difference among them. And so there's a lot of reason why some people think, you know, it's an important thing that voters actually have the opportunity and are encouraged to maybe split ticket vote and vote for a Republican for one office, a Democrat for another. But yeah, more and more states have moved away from that. And I, I think, you know, it might be a tool for a lazy voter because I lean Democrat, so I guess it's kind of safe for me to just pull that one lever or I lean Republican. But um, again, I, it's not always very reliable because you can have a pro-life Democrat and a pro-choice Republican. And if you thought if I voted for a Democrat or Republican, I knew what they were going to be on a particular issue. Same thing is true on like um, gun rights. There are some Republicans who are in favor of greater restrictions on guns. There are some Democrats who very much favor a pretty robust Second Amendment. So it really depends. So as far as a voter, if you think you know what you're going to get by straight ticket voting, that's not always the case. In fact, oftentimes it's not. Another thing voters frequently will see is the open ballot questions. Can you talk about those a little bit? What those are, how they come in, how, how they come to be, and then also 
what if a person is in a situation where the wording of the question, they, 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 they think, I, I think I understand what this is asking, but I'm not entirely sure. If there is that question there, should they, uh, should they not answer it? Is it more damaging to answer a question you're not entire, entirely uh, sure of what it, you're even being asked? Yeah. Well, I would say personally, I think if there's complete ignorance on a particular issue or candidate, it really doesn't make sense for a person to vote one way or the other. Um, initiatives, ballot questions, referendum are unique in all 50 states. Some states have a, a more, far easier process, others have a more restrictive. For a statewide ballot initiative in the state of Pennsylvania, it actually has to be started, initiated by the state legislature. And if a majority of those people vote for it, it then will be on the state ballot and then the citizens will vote on election day. The most recent one in Pennsylvania, some people listening might be familiar with this, in 2019 it was Marcy's Law, which was a victims of crimes sort of constitutional amendment giving greater protections to people who are victims of crimes. Uh, notification if a person was, the criminal was released. Notification if there were um, um, hearings, a bail hearing, or um, you know other things that case trial and things like that. So it was trying to enhance rights of victims of crimes, and that did pass overwhelmingly in 2019. I don't know if there's anything on the ballot for 2020. The laws in Pennsylvania, um, now that's for statewide. For counties and local municipalities, they also have the ability to get on the ballot. Most require about 10% of signatures from the number of people who voted in the last election. Then you have to pass around and get signatures in support of this being on the local ballot, and then it goes to the voters on election day. Those, the laws are about four months out. You have to get the signatures, and they have to be certified um, in order for it to appear on the ballot. Again, it's a matter of research, um, looking into issues. Now, for that Marcy's Law, there was actually a fair amount of television commercials about this. There was uh, opponents and supporters of it on both sides. There was a fair amount of um, media attention given to it at the time. But for more local ballot initiatives, again, you're going to have to do research. One of the web pages I mentioned, Ballotopia, um, is pretty good at doing that. Um, they will notify you if you go to it and put in where you're registered to vote. They will tell you what are the ballot initiatives on your local ballot. And they will also give pros and cons of both. Now, again, there may be some bias on that. But they what they'll try and do is show a, you know, different perspectives on this, who's in favor of it, who's opposed to a particular uh, initiative. Um, I used to live in Colorado, and they actually, Colorado has a very robust initiative referendum policy. I, I actually think it was, I was pretty critical of it. I thought it was too easy to get something on the initiative. All they do is get a certain number of signatures from the seven congressional districts in Colorado, and it would appear on the ballot. And so Colorado's constitution changed very frequently. There was always at least a half dozen different initiatives on the ballot every year, um, every, every election. Um, and what we see is actually, it's actually more Western states, which are the younger states. A lot of these came about um, as the rise of progressive era in the United States, late 1800s, early 1900s. And so 
there's favor of greater democracy in those states as opposed to the older constitutions of the more eastern states. And so it's kind of an interesting history of, of how that de- how that yeah. developed. Um, so it's more restrictive, certainly, in states east of the Mississippi than it is west of the Mississippi. But Colorado used to have to produce something. It was part of their constitution. It's called the Blue Book. And it actually was a lengthy description of every single ballot initiative throughout the state. And this thing would come, you, they actually were required by law to mail this to every, regist- every registered household in the United States. I'm sorry, in the state of Colorado. So before the election, every time we would get this thing in the mail, and it was dense. I mean, I never read through the entire thing um, because, I mean, it was dozens and dozens of pages long and very small print. Are you still doing that today, you think, mailing those out? Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Interesting. It's a lot of paper. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I think you kind of addressed this one, uh, so I have a feeling where you're going to land on this. But, you know, you're in a situation where, again, more locally – you may have a case where there's seven or eight individuals' names and, and you're allowed to select four or five for, for some particular office, and I'm sure that varies. And let's say you know one or two of them. Um, would this be a case where you'd say pick the ones you know and that you are, are uh, voting for? And even if the others, let's say, are in a party that you favor, um, are you doing anyone any good by selecting those others and kind of relying on the party uh, breakdown? Yeah, I mean, it's a tough call. I mean, assuming that there is something about party affiliation, then I probably would lean towards voting for the particular party that I was registered with or favored. Um, But on others where, you know, you don't know anyone, I mean, there's some elections where you actually have to choose, you know, both sides or opportunity to choose both sides. Um, If you don't know them, I, I... would be reluctant to, to vote if you know nothing about this particular candidate and party affiliation isn't really going to matter in this. I would be reluctant, uh, just as I would be about a ballot initiative. If you really don't know what it is you're voting for, I, I would. I think I, my preference would be that you know informed voting is very important and uninformed voting is, is problematic. So kind of our last uh, content question here um, on election day and, and kind of moving out of the out of the voting booth now. What are some of the things besides voting that are easy to do maybe, uh, will take a little extra work, but are patriotic and contribute to the election process in a meaningful way that you think voters should consider doing on top of being educated and a prepared voter and and doing a good civic uh, duty that way? Yeah. Well, I think there's two primary ways that you can get involved. One is actually working for candidates or parties, and there's a lot of need for those people to be out on election day. Um, Every person who's gone to a voting booth often sees people standing outside handing out information about their candidate or their party's candidates encouraging people to vote. So, I mean, that's really important. Uh, There are some people who maybe don't know, haven't done all the research. They tend towards one party or the the other, and, you know, so that, that could be helpful for them in making a decision. Um, There's also when there's ballot initiatives and stuff, I've seen people who are working specifically for that, um, you know, advocating in favor or opposed to it. And, you know, they'll have literature there. Um, So being a campaign volunteer working there, it it does matter. Um, It can maybe a person's undecided. Someone speaks to them, shares some information. Um, There's only restriction really is how close they can be to the entrance. Um, that's what the laws are. So you can engage in conversation with people. And I, I've worked on political campaigns where you start talking with somebody and maybe you have an impact or not. The other is actually being a poll worker. 
Um, and these are volunteer positions. Um, there are some who are elected, so there are judges of elections who preside over a, a polling uh, district, um, and they have an important role because sometimes they have to make decisions on ballots. Uh, sometimes a person shows up and they say they're registered, but they don't have a record of the registration. A provisional ballot will be cast, and then a decision will have to be made as whether that person was rightly registered in that place. But there's other poll workers there. There's people who have to manage the machines. There's people who have to sign people in. There's also always a minority and majority person present, so Democrat, Republican typically. And anytime there is a question or certification that has to be made, both of those people have to sit there and sign off on it. At the end of the day, when the voting machine is tabulated, they have to sign off on the numbers that, that are there. So there's ways you can actually get involved. And again, these are all volunteer positions. So um, for the elections, you actually have to get nominated for to be a judge of elections. But for the other positions, you just go and volunteer. And there's always a need for people to get involved in that way. So that's certainly an opportunity to, to do a bit more than just being a voter. That's great. You uh, mentioned a number of resources that you would like people to check out. Are there any additional that you want to mention here? We'll make sure we link to those, but besides those you've already mentioned? I think that I yeah, probably mentioned all them. VotesPA.com is one. Again, that's a link from the Secretary of State's. Um, it's a longer, much longer, and New Jersey doesn't have a, a cute one like that with Votes New Jersey. Um, so I'll just give the link. I'll get you the link for the Secretary of State's office and a couple of links from that register to vote locating your polling place and the likes, um, just to make it easy for the listeners to get that information. That's great. Well, this has been really helpful, very interesting, and uh, I hope um, we intended to uh, have this be kind of uh, everything you wanted to know about voting, but maybe we're embarrassed to ask because you don't know. So I think we've covered quite a bit of territory here. Greg, thank you very much for joining us and for taking the time as you have in the past to, to talk on the podcast here. I hope this has been beneficial to any of you who have been listening. Make sure you check out the links that we will post alongside of this. And uh, who knows, maybe this podcast will be a great resource for you as you prepare to be not a lazy voter, but an informed voter. Those are the kinds that, uh, that we really want. And so we hope it's been helpful for you. So thanks, alumni, for listening. And if you're interested in a little bit more from Greg and his take on the 2020 election specifically, stay tuned. We're back with Greg Schaller of the John Jay Institute for a few thoughts on the 2020 election. Greg, as Christian citizens participating um, as, as voters, how can we distinguish ourselves from the culture at large, would you say, in this particular election? And I don't know, do you have any particular thoughts on this election? Sure. Yeah. Well, I do think, I mean, 2020, um, building off of what happened in 2016, is certainly a fairly tumultuous time, I think, in American history. I think it's an accurate description to say that we are living in a hyper-partisan time. And I think that's problematic for our, our culture, for our politics, for our civil and civic engagement. And I, I would really encourage in this season for Christians to try and step back and maybe be distinct from what is very common in our, our culture today. And in thinking through you know, how, how can we do this? Um, how can we be different and still engage with our culture? And I don't want to um, 
diminish that there are significant differences right now between our parties and our candidates. And I think it's important that we be knowledgeable about that. But I also think we need a broader perspective and context in thinking about this. And maybe some of that context and perspectives can help guide our behavior and our participation today. In, in the spring, we, uh, Karen did a, a little panel on hyperpartisanship. And one of the things I discussed uh, when it was my turn to talk was that while things seem pretty dire and desperate right now, and I, I agree things are bad right now in our politics and our culture, this is not unique um, American in American history. The election of 1800, which was one of the sort of first really competitive races between a Federalist John Adams, who was the incumbent, and Thomas Jefferson, who had left the Federalist Party and challenged him for the presidency, some of the language used was extraordinary in the accusations made against each other. A supporter of John Adams said that if Jefferson were to win, we would see our wives and daughters the victims of legal prostitution and they further claimed that murder, robbery, rape, and adultery and incest will be openly taught and practiced. So that's what the Adams supporters said would happen if Jefferson became president. I can give you examples of the election of 1828 between John Quincy Adams and Andrew Jackson. Very similar accusations were made. And then, of course, we get to the election of 1860, where a nation was deeply divided uh, to the point where ultimately seven states secede from the Union and then further more states. Intense political disagreement and partisanship is not new in America. And so I think that's one thing we ought to have that perspective and that historical context to know that things have been just as bad, if not worse, in the past. Another thing I think we need to, again, for context and perspective, is that while there are indeed differences between our candidates, if you were to study American parties and politics and candidates in general elections between the United States and many other countries, the divide between Democrats and Republicans is actually not so great. Uh, there's a lot of studies, comparative studies being done on political parties and looking at countries like France and Germany, Israel, Italy, England. The divide in politics and the stances of their parties and candidates is often much wider in these other countries than there are in America. And one of the things that a lot of studies point to is that in America, we tend to be moderate people and we avoid the extremes. Now, I'm not denying that there are extremes within both political parties, and some of them are very vocal, and they're gaining some traction and certainly some attention right now. But if you look at where most Americans are, and most polling data supports this, they are not where those extremes on the far right and the far left are. We tend to be a more moderate people, and we govern from a more moderate perspective. So I, I think that's important <laughs> to keep in mind that and, you know, a lot of times we say, well, if we don't win this particular election, it's all going to fall apart. Well, we say that every four years, or some people say that every four years. And the reality is that's very unlikely to happen. I, again, I'm not trying to suggest that there are not differences. And we may get to a point where we're at an election where the victory of one party over another may lead to some really catastrophic results. Um, but I think we need to be careful about making those assumptions. Another thing I think as Christians engaging right now where we really need to be careful is we need to have a posture of charity and grace and learning and remembering how to disagree well. 
that just because I don't agree with you on something doesn't make you a bad person. Um, we need to be careful that we don't make assumptions about those who we disagree with, what their real motivations and their intentions are. Reasonable people can disagree on important issues. And I think we need to sort of get back to that where um, we have that posture and that attitude. Coming out of that election of 1800, Thomas Jefferson in his inaugural address said, we are all Democrats, we are all Federalists. The Democrat-Republican Party was the party that he formed when he separated from the Federalists. And there's a lot to that. It may seem like a very simple statement, but it would be encouraging for whoever's elected this year to say we're all Democrats, we're all Republicans, meaning there's something that unifies us as a people. And that unity and what unifies us is far greater than what our political differences are. I think it's important to keep in mind that most of our policy differences are just that. They're policy preference differences. They are not about differences in principle. And I think we need to be careful not to elevate our policy preference differences to the point of being real fundamental differences in who we are and what we are about. I think if we can kind of maintain that that gracious, charitable posture and one where I can agree to disagree with you and maybe disagree strongly, but that doesn't mean that you are my political enemy. You may be for this season my political opponent, but you're not my enemy. And I do think that a lot of our rhetoric today is rising to the level and is taking us to this place where you are my enemy if I disagree with you. And that, that's a dangerous place for us to be. I think there's still an awful lot that does unify us as a people, as a people in the United States. And I think we ought to be highlighting and emphasizing that. And that posture and that attitude, I think, will be constructive and enable us to begin working together, hopefully, regardless of who wins in this fall's election. All of that is background. There are differences between the parties, between the candidates, and I think it's important to be an informed voter. Um, what we had talked about previously about doing some research, going and learning about the candidates. I'd also encourage listeners to go to the political parties' web pages. Every four years, the parties craft a party platform, which is basically a statement of where we stand on various issues, and it runs the gamut from social issues, economic international relations, the environment, all sorts of things. Because of this unusual time living in COVID and the cancellation or mostly the cancellation of both of the parties' um, annual con or conventions, the Republicans have decided to just readopt their 2016 platform so there will be no change. The Democrats are doing something similar, but they're going to have maybe some amendments and a few alterations to it. So you could go right now and go to the two parties' web pages and look up their 2016 party platforms and do a comparison about them. You, you will see the differences. They will speak to the same issues and you'll see different perspectives on that. And so that's a way that a Christian can be a well-informed voter in thinking through these issues and then making a determination as to which party and which candidate better reflects their interests and their beliefs. Those are really helpful. Thanks for sharing, Greg. Absolutely. My pleasure.